I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Scott Miller, author and executive VP of Thought Leadership, Franklin Covey. His new book is Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. If you're like the millions of people who've made the challenging but rewarding leap to first-time manager, you might not be sure what your next move is. What made you success a successful employee won't necessarily make you a great manager. And the reality is that most people don't receive formal leadership training until 12 years after their promotion into management. Scott Miller delivers the guidance you expect to receive when you're promoted, the support, understanding, strategies, and tactics to develop as a leader and turn your people into an engaged, high-performing team. He's a 23-year associate of Franklin Covey, hosts multiple podcasts, including On Leadership with Scott Miller and Great Life, Great Career, and is a leadership columnist for Inc. Magazine and Thrive Global. Welcome to the show, Scott. Nice to have you on. Catherine, thank you for the audience and the platform. Okay, great. So, as I said, or I just said, which surprised me, this, so this is going to be my first question, is you say that most people don't receive formal leadership training until 12 years after their promotion into management. Uh, I guess, isn't that a little late? I mean, I, is that why you wrote the book? I think it's horrifyingly late. I mean, <laughs> That data actually, Catherine, comes from a Harvard Business Review study where the average age that someone receives their first promotion into a management position is typically age 30, yet they don't receive their first formal leadership training that's usually company-sponsored to their 42. So there is this 12-year sort of wandering in the desert period where people are kind of winging it and making it up and probably doing a lot of damage to people, and I can recognize that. I mean, I was promoted myself into being a, a, you know, a significant manager, like, you know, a, a legitimate manager at about 31. I, I kind of tacked well with that. You kind, of, you kind of get thrown right in. And, you know, oftentimes you end up doing the same things you did in the management role as an individual producer. And we know those things are rarely ever the same, right? The same competencies. We'll talk about that. But people are winging it and they're doing a lot of damage in companies. So, Scott, when you were winging it, what kind of company were you winging it in? I mean, you talked about, yes, and I think that's a good point. The Franklin this- Covey Company. That's what's so horrifying, right? I mean, we're <laughs> the most prestigious leadership development firm, at least by my standard in the world. And I, I was promoted to be a leader. And, you know, like all companies, you know, we're, we're focused on, on talent, but we're also more focused on our customers. So, you know, the, the adage, the cobbler's kids have no shoes, couldn't have been more um, relevant. So what did you do in that kind of a situation? Were you the one who went to management and said, you know what, I, I don't, in terms of being a manager, I don't know what I'm doing. As an employee, I was great, but now help me make this leap. Or did they come to you first and say, okay, I think we need to do something. You need training. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't quite that gracious. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have the maturity to know the difference. I mean, Catherine, the fact of the matter is most people are promoted into their first management or leadership role because they were great as individual producers, right? They were either the, you know, the top dental hygienist or the most productive or competent or creative digital designer or the best salesperson. They get promoted over their peers because they were great at their individual contributing job. They didn't necessarily have any leadership skills or management skills. Some do, most don't. The problem is we think the same competencies that got us into the job are those that will keep us in the job. It's, it, nothing can be further from the truth. 
And oftentimes, they're the opposite. I mean, think about a, a great salesperson, right? The person that's a great sales producer is, you know, usually likes the limelight, like to be very significant, like, like competition. They want to be at the top of the scoreboard beating their peers. Those are the exact opposite skills of a sales leader. Someone has to really change their paradigm and realize they need to get results with and through other people, now not just themselves. So for me, I think I was probably a bit of a train wreck. I, I thought my job was to turn everybody else into me. I got promoted, so my skills were valued, so I'm going to go out and, in a bit of a reign of terror, turn everybody into me, and of course, it didn't work. Fortunately, the company had a lot of patience and faith in me, and I had a lot of great leaders, but I was a bit of a train wreck myself. Well, Scott, what about the concept that there are born leaders? Are there born leaders, or can you just train any competent competent person? Because I think this is a good example. I mean, I mean, you could take an example of people who are great researchers and they have a lot of knowledge, but you would never want them to necessarily be teaching other people, even be professors, for instance, because they don't have those kinds of that skill set. So, do you, can you learn the skill set of being a great manager, or are you? born with a certain raw talent that you can build on, or how does that work? Yeah, it's a superb multi-part question. First of all, I don't even understand that phrase, right, born leaders. I don't think it's a fallacy. I think it's a misnomer. I don't think anybody is born a leader. I think people are born outgoing and perhaps a little more charismatic. I think some people perhaps are louder than others. So I think there are certain characteristics that some people associate with great leadership, but we also know that isn't necessarily true. Some of the best leaders of organizations and even the military and politicians are quite um, retiring and, and, and humble and, and more quiet. So I don't think there's a correlation between personality and leadership. So no, I do not think people are born leaders. I think too often we confuse personality traits with green, being great leaders. Jim Collins, in his seminal book, Good to Great, dispelled any correlation between you know, charisma and personality and great leadership and financial results. Second, I think people can absolutely become great leaders. But let me preface that with this thought, which is not everybody should be a leader of people. And I think that's a little bit um, the antithesis of what the leadership industry has taught a lot of years. And at some point, Franklin Covey, I think we've lured people into leadership roles because it's the next natural career promotion, right? If you want to earn more money, get a better title, move up in the company, you have to lead people. So what happens is instead of being led into leadership, people are lured into leadership because it's the only way to be promoted. Now you've got your top producing people, and now they're leading people, and they realize too often, oh, my gosh, I hate this job, right? I don't want to have uncomfortable conversations and call out my you know, last, last week, who were my peers? And this week, they report to me. I call them out on their productivity or collaboration. So I do think leadership can be taught. Absolutely. There are common roles and practices and competencies that great leaders had. All those can be taught. But not everyone wants to be taught them or have move outside their comfort zone. So I think there is a true statement that everybody has leadership within them, right? You can lead a committee. You can lead a project. You can lead out your own career. That doesn't necessarily correlate with you choosing or being great at being a leader of other people. Everyone should be much more deliberate on who we're promoting into leadership and then just be very candid around what's it going to be like. Describe you know, the types of competencies 
that you're going to need as a leadership, as, as a leader. I'll, I'll share one more thought. I'm sorry for going so long on this, but I think human resources, learning and development, and, and, and senior leaders, when you're thinking of promoting somebody into a leadership role, sit them down. Get a chart pad out and write, here's the 14 things you've done extremely well as an individual contributor, whatever it is, bam, 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 bam. And then I would cross out all those things that are not going to serve them well as a leader. And then write out, you're going to need to learn these skills so that somebody really understands, oh, what got me here, got me here, but it's not going to get me there as a leader. No one ever told me that what made me a great salesperson was actually going to destroy the sales culture when I tried to turn everybody into me. Scott, but what about the people who sit down and they're talking with the HR person or whomever in their company, and don't you have to explore with them? Maybe they don't want to be promoted, and that's okay. Maybe it's not okay. I don't know. It depends on the company, I guess. Or, But maybe they want to stay where they are because they understand that they are somebody who doesn't want to be having to interact or communicate with, connect with people all the time. So they have to have a real, when you're working for some, in that capacity, a real understanding of yourself, right? Your motives, your personality, and be able to say no to being promoted to a managerial position? Absolutely. And not just say no, but not feel shamed by it. I mean, you know, too many of our Fortune 5,000 companies now have some requirements where you can't get promoted if you don't lead a team, right? Google and Facebook and others. I think we've somehow moved into this realm where leadership is the ring the bell. It's the pinnacle for everybody. It's not true. There are, you know, probably 90% of most organizations' workforces really do not want to lead people. They want to be super creative and roll up their sleeves, get the work done. They're no less valuable. They don't have any less... Um, of talent to contribute, but you're right. They don't want to have these really difficult leadership positions that require a whole different level of skill that's not natural to them or just isn't where they want to go in their career. So to your point, Catherine, I think organizations really need to be thinking about how do you build a career track? How do you build a culture where people feel safe not to have to move up into leadership? My father is a perfect example. 30 plus years at Lockheed Martin, he was an illustrator, like, you know, drew missiles and was part of our Patriot Missile Defense Program. And then something I think he really enjoyed. And then, you know, to get promoted or more money, he had to lead a team. I think it was the beginning of the end for him because I don't think he had the, the natural kind of communication skills and wasn't a very vulnerable person and kind of saw things his way. Very competent, great father, great legacy. But I think that move to leadership kind of crushed his spirit. And he hated going to work. He hated his job because these were not not natural or comfortable skills for him to learn. So to your point, individual contributors are the backbone of organizations. They pay the salaries, they do the work, and we should herald that and be very deliberate and careful about communicating to people, here's what it means to be moving into leadership. Is this right for you? How many of these companies or how many companies, you mentioned, what, the Fortune 5000 or even like small businesses, let's talk about the big companies, large companies and the small companies, embrace like what you're saying. I mean, obviously what happened to your father at Lockheed Martin is not good for him or for the company. So are companies beginning to embrace what you talk about in your book? And I want to get to the specifics of that, the six critical 
practices for a leading team. Sure. What yeah. are companies doing? Well, I think it's you know it's easy for you and I to discuss on the radio. It's different for you know an organization to really put that into practice. I, I think a couple of things. I, I think that you know again depends on the size of the company, right? A, a great organization that is a large organization can build a culture. They can build processes where someone can actually complete their entire career objectives inside the company. I mean, obviously, a mom-and-pop company can't do that, or even a company with 100 people can't build a career track for people to satisfy all their career needs in the company. You know, gone are the days where you know, my father and I, I've been at Franklin Covey for 23 years, my father, Lucky Martin, for 30. Th- those days are over. No one in my peer group, Catherine, I'm 51, no one in my peer group unless you were in the military or maybe the post office, had been in the same company for 23 years. I've been able to have seven different careers in the same company. That's also very rare. What I do think is happening in organizations is understanding that not everybody should, in fact, be a leader and must be careful about moving them up into leadership by having, you know, more transparent conversations and not making it a bit of a shaming. I, I don't think there's a wholesale change going on. But when the average tenure now is three to four years in any organization, it's unlikely people are going to be able to stay as an individual producer without moving up because people are tending to bounce around more based on their own choice, which, by the way, isn't a badge of shame. It used to be if you left somewhere, you were kind of, you know, you know, persona non grata and a pariah. Now it's quite the norm. If you stay, people wonder, what's wrong with you? Does nobody want you? Right? Yeah. It's changed so dramatically. The, the paradigm is different, but it made me think of something as you're just talking about that. Like now, if people are moving around and that's the norm every two to three years, they're not going to stay in within that company. Uh, they're not going to stay in, let's say, their managerial position. What does that do to companies? They have to keep retraining people to be managers. Uh, isn't that a, you know, they don't, if they have somebody there for 20 years, that's very different than if they have most of their, their people, their employees there for three years. I mean, in yeah. term, yeah. It's kind of become the norm. I, mean, I think organizations realize where now the Gen X and millennial workforce, you know, represent the largest share of the workforce. And they have very different demands. They have, you know, enormous competencies and well-educated, but they, they have a whole different paradigm, belief system of what their career looks like and what the company should offer them. So I do think most organizations realize that the kind of the base level is if we can keep someone for four years, that's a home run. But the way I think great organizations are addressing it is through culture, period. I think culture used to be a nice, soft, you know, word to throw around. This is as a hard economic indicator as any line on your P&L. Great organizations build cultures where people choose to stay. Because we know from the adage, people don't quit their jobs. They quit their leader, their bad boss, or they quit their horrible company culture. So organizations that want to extend the longevity of an employee, reduce turnover, and keep people in, they realize they've got to make a great place to work. That's why you see this explosion of all these accolades and awards and rankings now. Great place to work, great, great, great place for mom and best benefits because people will choose to stay if they love their boss or they think their boss loves them. I say love appropriately. And if they really feel valued in the company's culture. And culture has now become a very tangible thing that leaders have to create because leaders are responsible for the culture in their company, they create it in every interaction or they destroy it in every interaction, every text, every email, every voicemail, every meeting. 
And if you want someone to dismiss the recruiter's call or not move that little button on LinkedIn that says open to opportunities, then you are creating a great culture and you're investing in your leaders because that's why people quit. That brings us to the books and the specifics that you've written about in the book, the six critical practices for leading a team. Let's talk about those specifically. What do you need to do? Yeah, so obviously there's more than six things leaders need to do, right? But as we thought and studied the research that we've had at Franklin Covey, of course, we're a global company, offices in about 60 countries, one of the longest in the business. We have, you know, data and research from millions of leaders and managers. We did boil it down into six fairly practical tips, and I think they're resonating. The book launched a week ago. It debuted at number three in the Wall Street Journal list. We're very proud of that. Congratulations. And we think these six critical practices are really uh, not easy to replicate, but they're easy to understand. The first one is develop a leader's mindset. And and that really is about making that paradigm shift from when you move up from an individual producer where you're responsible for only your own results, sounds appealing sometimes even (laughs) to me, um, to realizing, like I said before, now my job is to get results with and through other people. My job is not to clone me. My job is not to force everybody into my paradigm of what I think success is. My job isn't to save the day. It's to coach, mentor, align their passions with their talent, and really understand that my job is to build relationships, which is the backbone of every culture. So you've got to make a paradigm shift, a belief system. All of us, Catherine, as you know, have deeply entrenched mindsets about ourselves, leadership, the industry, religion, people of other faiths and colors. They were usually, you know, um, enculturated in us from birth by our parents, our uncles, our ministers, our principals, our teachers, our neighbors. And when you move into a leadership role, you've really got to change your mindset. You know, you might have to sit down with a box and pack up all your awards, all your chairman's club trophies and all your certificates and appreciate them, but pack them away and realize, you know what, it isn't about me anymore. It's about really building capability of my teams because that's a leader's legacy. So you need to be able to, uh, I guess I'm going to say, adapt, go on, change, be fluid, be, I mean, the whole, as you say, when the paradigm changes, so within a company, you really do have to, flexibility, the word flexible keeps sort of coming to mind. To be a bit, the ability to, you're exactly right. Yeah, almost put on a new pair of glasses and realize, you know, and again, this is a little bit cliche-ish, but what got me here is great but it's not going to keep me here now. I'm going to have to learn a different set of skills. I I think my example earlier is the perfect example. I was a really solid sales producer, right? Hit my goal, hit chairman's club, always hit my quarters. When I was promoted to be a sales leader, I I just kind of thought, well, they want me to turn everybody into me. I I honestly thought that. Naive and horrifying. No one told me differently. No one sat me down. Even at Franklin Covey and said, Scott, these are your skills that were great. These 14 things we actually don't want you to do anymore. Now we want you to do these things. And I don't mean to blame anybody. I had, I had, I had generally great leadership, but I don't think I had the maturity and the self-awareness, and I had too many blind spots to realize my job is to help people get the same result, but in ways that leverages, is their, leverages their talents and passions. Because you can get the same result through different um, through methods. 
Okay, so don't get stuck <laughs> because if, if don't yeah, get well stuck said. in your yeah. Okay, so what what would be the? I mean, that's a great description of the first one, but I know there are more than six. But okay, let's go to and uh, give us another example of one of the critical practices that we need uh, for leading a team. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll mention the second one, which is hold regular one-on-ones. And it may seem obvious at first blush, but this is a different type of meeting that also requires a different paradigm, where most of us as leaders have our weekly staff meeting, we have accountability checkups on projects. But this is a meeting where you get a chance to really connect with your individual people. And it requires uh, a couple different um, uh, uh, changes in how you think. One is, it's actually not your meeting, it's their meeting. It's your employees' meeting. They set it. They develop the agenda. They do 90% of the talking. You do 10 or 20% of the talking. Your job is to listen, understand, and connect. What are their struggles? Are they enjoying their job? As a leader, what do they need differently from you to thrive in their role? Do they have some challenges, some fears? Are they thinking of leaving? Are they enjoying staying? It's a chance for you to understand their level of engagement. You know, Catherine, I think there's a misnomer out there that we hear employee engagement all over the place now. Leaders do not create engagement. Leaders create a culture and set the conditions where every individual employee chooses their own level of engagement, high or low. So these regular one-on-one meetings are meant for you to connect with your people and really understand what's going on in their life. Every culture is different. There's boundaries. But, you know, I, I keynote two or three times a week. I'm headed to San Diego today to give a keynote on this. And I'll always ask Catherine in my keynotes this question that really anybody gets right. I'll say, who can tell me why the guy down three cubicles from you is eating popcorn for lunch on Thursday? And people say, oh, he loves popcorn, or he was really hungry, or it was popcorn Thursday. I'm like, no, no, not even, not even close. That you missed this should horrify you. He's, this is metaphorical, of course. He's eating popcorn for lunch on Thursday because payday is Friday. And he just took his last $3 and put it in his gas tank to get to work. And tonight at midnight, he or his partner or spouse or wife or whoever, one of them is going to the grocery store to buy milk and Cheerios to feed their kids in the morning because there's no money left. And if that surprises you or horrifies you, then you're super disconnected from 90% of the workforce that are living paycheck to paycheck. I, I use that example, Catherine, because, A, it's super real. I don't know about you, but I've been there many times mm-hmm. in my life. Not recently, fortunately, but I've been there. And these one-on-ones give you a chance to understand what's going on people in on people's lives and their careers, right? Everyone's got a kid who's vaping. Everyone's got a mother-in-law who's moving into dementia. Everyone's got a bill they can't pay. It doesn't mean you pay their bills, but it means you understand and you listen to their fears, their concerns, their excitements, their career desires, and when a person thinks their leader cares about them, they will not move across the street for a free soda fountain or a dollar more an hour. They'll say, no, thank you. And that's how you create an engagement culture where people like their bosses. Yeah, I mean, that seems critical. It's really interesting you should mention that. I had a discussion with my son about that who felt that I didn't have the understanding 
just as you mentioned about the guy sitting in the next cubicle who's eating the popcorn and why he or she is doing that. Um, so interesting that you brought that up. But what about and in millennials and Gen Xs who have difficulty connecting? I mean, this is sort of a generalization, but you see it all the time. We only have three minutes left. Uh, so they're not used to connecting one-on-one. That's not their skill set, you know, as opposed to maybe baby boomers who, yes, yeah, that that's yeah. what they're comfortable with. Maybe this is the last question. We, I mean, people have to go out and buy the book. Everyone deserves a great manager, Scott Miller. But so let's sort of end with this question because yeah. the, the yeah the, the I, yeah go ahead. Sorry, guys. I think it's a great question. I think it's you got to model it. You got to make it safe, right? A leader has to make it safe. So pick the pick the scenario, pick the physicality, conference room, go for a walk. If you model what you want to see in them being a little more vulnerable, talking about some of their fears or concerns, making it safe for them to tell you their truth, people will generally open up. You might have to do the first couple yourself or feed them some questions, but what the leader models usually gets modeled back to them and their people over time. If you make it safe for people to open up and not retaliate or make them feel bad, people will begin to build trust with you. Well, it sounds like as a social worker, as you know, that's my moniker, your social worker with a microphone. That's what social workers do. That's what therapists do and counselors do. So that's kind of an added, maybe an added skill that's really important right now if you're going to be a good manager, um, which maybe have, maybe much is, is different than it was, say, maybe, I don't know, even 20 years ago. I think you're right. I mean, it's practice four, create a culture of feedback, not just you giving feedback to others but being mature enough to solicit and take feedback from your team about you. Let's talk about websites we can go to. Obviously, you just mentioned, you're, I think you're on your way to San Diego, and I assume that you go around the country, but website or websites we can go to for more information about your book and about what you're doing and where you where are you? <laughs> well, my, my wife says I'm everywhere. She's kind of okay, so... <laughs> Uh, and that was not a compliment on my, my wife. So you can visit the book site, everyonedeservesagreatmanager.com. Sorry for the links. And you can connect to any of the three authors on there, including me. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. You also could, of course, visit franklincovey.com. There's a big banner there for the new book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. You can just Google Scott Miller, Franklin Covey. I'm, I'm available for keynotes. I host a, a leadership newsletter and podcast every week. So it's, uh, if you just Google Scott Miller and Franklin Covey, you can learn more about me. And the book, of course, is available everywhere now where books are sold. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Scott. Great talking to you. Lots of good information. My honor, Catherine. Thank you so Thanks. much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 